share my heart with you this morning, a little bit away from James, we're going to get back to that in a couple weeks, but these are some meditations on my heart from being away for several weeks. I was able to unplug, I was able to enjoy family, enjoy grandparents, enjoy my grandparents, 99-year-old and 94-year-old grandmothers. Um, I was able to watch my kids interact with my parents and interact with each other as cousins and nephews and nieces and all the different things that really it's good to do with young kids, and it's good for my own heart. But as I detached myself from here to do that, I also attached myself to Ephesians chapter 5 and then chapter 6. And the Lord was working in my heart this several weeks to, I think, crystallize some core commitments that I want myself to have, I want to have, and I want to be committed to these things. But I want you as a church family to recommit yourself to these areas because these are biblical areas. These are areas that Christ commands us as Christians to be committed to. We're going to be looking at five core commitments from the scripture. And it's so interesting. When you get away, if you ever go away on vacation, you know that you detach, but you also get a clear, a clarifying perspective on your life, don't you? I I, I did. And there were a few things that clarified my perspective. One was watching um, my beloved wife um, go out on a kayak in three to five foot swells. That was clarifying for me because I thought, well, you know, I'll help her on the kayak. I'll, I'll go out there with her. And she's going, just, just stay away. You know, just, just go watch the kids. I've got this. And I'm thinking, yeah, you've got it all right. I mean, her 16-year-old nephew had already bailed out of the kayak and headed back to the beach and said, I want nothing to do with this day in the ocean. Judy's out there. She's made it over the swells on her own. And then I look back. And she's perched up on a five-foot face, dropping in on this swell. Now, she didn't make it, and it flipped over, and I thought, I've lost my wife forever. But when she came up laughing, that was clarifying for me, you know, that, that life is good, and it's good to enjoy life to the fullest. There was another clarifying moment for me, and that was on the last leg of the plane journey back from the east all the way west, where we're leaving from Seattle to Anchorage. Now, we had driven four hours from Lynchburg, Virginia to D.C. Reagan Airport, two in the morning to have a flight at 9.30, so we weren't going to miss the flight. So we made that drive, went over to LAX, shepherded the kids through the layover, then up to Seattle. And so by that point, we're pretty baked, if you can imagine. I mean, there's a lot of parental you know, and kid dynamite on the ground. There's a lot of things that could happen as you enter a plane and you're figuring out the seating in this last leg. And so we're all kind of holding our breath. And what was interesting is we were placed at different parts of the plane. And so I've got Brady with me. Riley's got Carson over here. And you've got kids in the back with Judy. Well, Judy gets the idea that she wants me to have two kids instead of one. That was mistake number one. Uh, anyway, so she, she sends... She swaps a seat out with a guy. I'm watching this just happen. She's negotiating through a steward. And she sends Owen down the aisle for me. So I've got Brady, and all of a sudden now I've got little two-year-old Owen with me. I mean, that's just not good. And so what was my mistake is I didn't sit between them. I decided to sort of put them in the aisle together. It was a bad mistake because all of a sudden during the safety speech, the steward is there with his life preserver on which just makes it even more comedic. But he's right there, and at that point, 
Brady and Carson, I mean, Brady and Owen begin to have a slap fight. And it's just cranking, it's getting worse and worse. And to end the fight, Brady takes Owen's arm like a chicken leg and just latches down on that thing in full force. So Owen screams bloody murder. I don't know if we were taxiing it not or not at that point, but everything stopped. And the steward came down with full life vest to give me the, the airport gospel of what I had done wrong, you know, in full speech. And I'm sitting there thinking, it's her. It's, it's Judy in the back. She's the one that gets detention. You know, give it to her, not me. She brought the baby to me. So, so she, you know, so we survived these moments and they were, uh, they were good um, for us to sort of find clarity but all of these things in terms of the warp and woof of interacting with parents, grandparents, nieces, nephews, cousins, all the different stories that everybody has and, and then traveling, they, they crystallized for me what really matters in life. Number one is your personal relationship to Jesus Christ. Number two, your personal relationship to your spouse. Number three, your personal relationship to your kids. And number four, your personal relationship that you have to your community around you. And number five, which kind of goes with four, and that is your personal relationship that you should be, relationships that you should be making with unbelievers. To me, these core commitments are what matter in life most of all. After all is said and done, after everything sort of boils away from your life, what should be there at center in the core are these things. Christ, your family, your world, your community that you're trying to reach for Christ. So I found these things in Ephesians 5. This is where I was meditating over the last several weeks. And it all centers at verse 18 of Ephesians 5. Follow as I read this. Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of God. What I find in this small section is simply this. You're either going to focus in a spiritual way about your life, or you're going to focus your life in a worldly way. You're either going to think like the world thinks, or you're going to think in terms of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. There's a lot of confusion that surrounds verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. But it really all boils down to this. Paul is talking to a very pagan culture and a church that's been born again in a pagan, party-living, sex-filled, party-living environment. And he's saying, look, don't think like you used to. Don't think like a partier, like a drunk anymore. Think like a Christian. Be filled with the Spirit. Think spiritually. Think about this first commitment that I'm talking about, my relationship with Jesus Christ. As I walked around and spent time with family, walked on the beach a bit, meditating, and I was thinking about 
living the spiritual life, I thought to myself that prayer for me needs to be more than just something I do. It needs to be a walk with Jesus Christ. It's something that I experience with a person. Prayer for me should not be something that is a yoke of slavery on my neck where I think, man, I didn't get to do it this morning, or I need to do it now later on this evening. No, it should be an ongoing communion and relationship and conversation with the Lord, the one who I love the most. And the only way I think you can say that you love Jesus the most is if you are ongoingly talking with him, seeking him. Now, I think that there is a time for formal prayer, for very intentional prayer, for what you might call high prayers from the word of God, but there should be the pray without ceasing conversation with the Lord that's ongoing. It's the only way you can say you love Jesus more than other people that you talk to all the time, that you share your heart with all the time, that you lay your needs on all the time, right? When you give needs to people and you say, look, let me talk to you about this. I I need you to sort of bear this burden for me. Well, the only way you can say that you love Jesus most of all is to be doing that most often with him. And so that was sort of a recommitment in my heart that I was making over the last several weeks to do that, to to seek Jesus personally. It's been something I've been thinking about a lot. Look at verse 19 of chapter 5. This is the whole body addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. There's a corporate sense and there's there's an individual sense here of our relationship to the Lord. Specifically, when Paul says we are to make melody to the Lord with our hearts, you know what that is? That is singing a song of praise personally to Jesus with our hearts. That's what our prayer life should be like. A melody of praise to Jesus all the time, personally. It's where we walk with him and do that. If you look back in Ephesians 5, and you look at... um, Verse 2, it says, walk in love. The Christian life is a walk. It's something that is relational, where we are living our life with the Lord, walking with him. And he picks up on this theme of walking again in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. It's not just a do's and don'ts religion. That's not what Christianity is. It's unlike all the other religions. It's not something you sign up for and put yourself under as a yoke burden of slavery. No. Christianity is where we are walking in communion and fellowship with the Lord because we have seen him and we know who he is and we want to be with him. It's being one of the 12 apostles that walked with Jesus Christ personally and intimately. It's joining that band of brothers. And then when you look down at verse 19 and it talks about doing this corporately, where it's not just a personal walk, but it's a corporate walk, it really clarifies for me what we gather for in the first place. You know why we gather as a church? Because we love Jesus and we want other people to be built up in loving Jesus. Do you get that? The reason that you come to church is for your own personal walk because you love Jesus Christ and you want that to be stimulated, but it should also be that you become spiritually minded and you want other people's walks to be enhanced. You want other people to grow in their relationship with Jesus. That's our heart. 
That's why we come to church, because we're building up other people's relationships with Jesus and our own personal relationship with Jesus. That's my core commitment. There's so much more that's going on behind the scenes that we don't always see. And I was thinking of this uh, when I was looking at the Atlantic Ocean and I was talking to Judy's sister and saying, you know, there's a lot of wildlife out there, but, you know, there really aren't so many sharks around and you don't have to think about that so much. I, I saw some porpoises, you know, in the morning time, you know, going by. I actually went out and surfed in, in the morning and had some porpoises go by and had some some sweet fellowship watching uh, the Lord's creation, had some pelicans go by. And so I'm just thinking in serene terms. But, you know, my sister-in-law was convinced that there are sharks out here and we need to be wary of them. And there are sandbars where kids are way out and this could be dangerous. And I'm like, oh, come on. I've grown up in this. I've, I know this water. You know, I used to watch this water as a lifeguard. And so then this fisherman reels in a two-foot sand shark right as we're talking and it's like flopping out on the beach and she's like see you know the the bait was drawing him in I'm like come on that's an exception you know that rarely happens it's only a two-foot shark the next day Judy is out with her nephews and and nieces and with her sister a different sister and she's out on that sandbar And the gal I was talking to, the other sister, is on the beach taking pictures of this, them just out there, and a five-foot sand shark comes in and circles them. The 16-year-old nephew is very level-headed, just looked and said, guys, there's a shark surrounding us right now. And, And the tail actually whipped him on the way out. Freaky. And, you know, what's wild is, is Judy, actually, I was proud of her, she armed herself with a plastic cup in that moment. There's actually a picture of that, you know, that I saw. And I thought, man, you know, that's, there's something good about that. She's, she's concerned for others. Really, she said later, I wasn't concerned for the fishermen. I wasn't concerned for anybody else. I just needed to get uh, my sister's nephew in so that my sister wouldn't kill me if something happened to him. Her other sister who was out there was pushing everybody back towards the shark as she lunged into shore. It was, you know, a lot of good moments. But I bring all that up to say that Just like how we can't see in the ocean, we can't see what's happening in the spiritual realm, but there's a lot happening. There's a lot going on in the unseen spiritual world, and it's it's the Christians who tap into this commitment and say, I'm going to walk with Jesus, I'm going to give every detail of my life to Jesus as it comes, personally, relationally, not just seeking the Lord to pray out of duty or discipline or out of guilt, but out of a relationship, that's when you get to tap into Christianity. This is not just my personal core commitment. This is what it means to be committed as a Christian. Second commitment. The second commitment is our relationship to our spouse. Wives to husbands and husbands wives. If you look at verse 22 and then verse 25, you see some pretty strong medicine in terms of the design of the home from Paul. Paul says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a lot that could be said here, but let me just say this. None of this makes any sense to live a marriage in this way unless you are spiritually connected to to Jesus. Unless you are operating in a spiritual mindset. If you're still stuck in a pagan mindset or a worldly mindset, you might say, 
well, Ephesus was pretty bad and they were really twisted. No, well, look at the internet today or the media culture. That's a modern day Corinth or Ephesus. If you're thinking like that, then headship in the home or submission to a husband, that makes no sense whatsoever. However, if you were spiritually minded and if you're thinking in terms of what Jesus has in mind here for the home, it makes all the sense in the world. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I love how Paul connects that phrase there. As to the Lord, to submission. What Paul is saying is that wives, listen, even if you've got a really hard husband to follow, Perhaps he's kind of a couch potato. Perhaps he's kind of a deadbeat. Perhaps he gets on your nerves. Perhaps he's, he's even, you know, just hard to live with. He's crossing the line in, in ways that you don't prefer. Submission is first and foremost based on your relationship to the Lord. The reason that you would come under a husband like that is because you love Christ and you're trusting Christ. Now, that doesn't give... A husband licensed to abuse his wife or to wield this command as some sort of dictator. But it makes no sense whatsoever to follow a dude unless you are following Jesus first and foremost, right? And you come under leadership because of Christ. And then verse 25, this is where my attention was really focused. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When I was away, it was just crystal clear in my mind as I was meditating on the truth and talking to Jesus about my commitments that my number one relationship apart from Christ, next to Jesus Christ, is my relationship to Judy. She's it. It's like all other things do not compare to my relationship with her. That's it. And just as Christ, as the head of the church, laid his life down for the church, loves his church. It's his bride. It says here in the text that he's washing the church with the word of God to sanctify her and care for her. That's how our relationship to our wives must be men. They must be that way. It's a total commitment. And if you have a relationship with your wife, then headship and submission makes sense. If you don't have a relationship to your wife, it makes these commands seem completely out of bounds, does it not? It does. I mean, husbands, they, men don't want to lay down their lives for their wives. They want to go to work, show up, make the money, make sure the goals are met, and then go golf or or unplug. I mean, that's, that's the natural, even sinful inclination of a man. Instead, the man needs to come home, see his wife as his best friend, the one he wants to pour his time out to, get to know, understand, talk to, communicate with, roll up his sleeves, and be part of the household with. That's a spiritual mindset. That's where not being drunk with the world, but being filled with the Spirit, having the mind of Christ, letting the Word of Christ richly indwell your thinking, that's when that stuff happens. When that's not happening, this core commitment is just lunacy. It makes no sense whatsoever. It's the same thing for the wife as well. Having to live with a guy like me, I mean, Judy must love the Lord a lot. It all comes down to verse 31. Look at that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. What happens when you get married? 
all marriages, even secular marriages, this is what's happening. The two become one person. I like to say when I marry people, two people walked into this room as individuals and they will leave as one. It's spiritual. It's not just a physical bond and it's not just a vow commitment at the altar. It is a spiritual union in the eyes of God. You are one flesh in your relationship. And I was thinking, Judy to me is an extension of who I am. And that's why Paul says here, look, no one ever hated his own flesh. We take care of our flesh. We feed ourselves. We make sure our needs are met. And you've got to work in union with your spouse in that way. You do. You might say, well, look, Jeff, you you don't understand my marriage situation. I'm married to an unbeliever or we had a divorce or this has happened. You don't get my life. So why are you saying these things to me? Well, what I would say to you is, listen, instead of focusing on yourself, look at your mistakes or your circumstances or things that have happened to you as an opportunity to encourage other people with your history, with your story. Because even if this commitment, this commitment to be relating to your spouse, even if you didn't hold up the end of your bargain or somebody else didn't hold up the end to their bargain, they didn't didn't keep the core commitment, out of that disaster, you can teach other people, you can help other people with your experiences. And you can encourage people not to make the same mistakes or fall into the same circumstances if possible through your own ministry to them in discipleship, in relationship. And perhaps you're looking to be married again, or perhaps you're looking to be married for the first time. You still need to have the right core commitment in mind so that it goes well in the future. Core commitments, third commitment. The third commitment that I have is the commitment to my children. Outside of my commitment to Christ... And my commitment to my wife, my kids matter most to me. And I've got a pile of them. And so it's easy for me to look at them just as people that I'm supposed to clothe, feed, provide for, and educate, even spiritually. I mean, it is very easy for me to line up the cereal bowls, line up the diapers, line up the stuff, and just work them through the machinery and ship them off, either outside or otherwise. But I am called instead to relate to my kids, personally, intimately. There's a theme here in the sermon. It's a sermon of relationships, relating to the kids. The Bible calls us to live with our wives in an understanding way, but it also calls us to not provoke our children to wrath. Look at verse 4. It says of chapter 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That is a sort of clear command in Scripture where the reader of this letter in Ephesus would be looking at the fathers. He's just looked at the children and said, Okay, children, heads up. Mental note here, obey your parents. That's what's going to give you blessing and a long life. This is right out of the Old Testament, kids. Don't miss it. It's restated in the New Testament. And now fathers, heads up. Okay, look up here, fathers. Don't provoke your kids to wrath. That's what would have been going on in the early church. Dads, don't do this. And that is because it is a very easy temptation as a dad to wield too much authority or do it in a way that's ungodly 
to beat kids up verbally and it destroys their little hearts. It does. That's provoking children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know what this means? It's not talking about corporal punishment here. The discipline here is talking about directed guidance in the word of God and in wisdom, which all of that comes through relationship. Knowing your kids personally, knowing what they like, knowing what they don't like. Probably one of the best little bits of wisdom that I heard was from, uh, in terms of parenting, was from my mother-in-law, where she said, look, you know, sure, give them the word of God, but learn what they like to do. Go build something with that child. That child likes to build. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, involving yourself with the interests of your kids. Very important to do. I uh, was very tempted one evening during my time away to blow off a commitment that I had made to Logan, my 10-year-old. And so there we are, and he, what he really likes to do is go out at night and go after blue-finned crabs and catch them and put them in a bucket. I mean, it doesn't matter. Once they're in the bucket, we could throw them out. It doesn't matter. He's not doing anything except catching creatures. He loves to conquer creation. He takes the whole idea of taking dominion over the creation a little too seriously. If it's alive, he's after it. It's scary. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just bugs, slugs, you know, all kinds of things. He's digging in the sand the whole time. If it's moving, he's going to try to go after it. So he wants to take me out and do that. Well, the problem was, is it was about 1030 at night. I'd been out with my brother getting some, you know, time with him, and I was exhausted and, you know, kind of beaten down from the sun, and I was sort of hedging on this, saying, well, you know, I, I really need to go to bed, and we can do this, and I just watched his countenance begin to drop in a way that was a little extraordinary, and I thought, you know, I'm hurting him, and this is my opportunity to make good on a commitment. And so, you know, you get the flashlight, you get your buckets, and you're tired, and you sort of stomp out to the beach. And what I didn't realize is that at night, I was going into enemy territory, and I was on their terms. I mean, there are crabs everywhere at night, and they're coming in and out of holes, and they've got the pinchers, and they're after you. It's kind of walking out into the night of the living dead. I was on the beach, and I looked, and there were about five or six, and they're pale in the, in the sort of flashlight. But then I look down the beach, and there's about 60 or, seven, an arm, 60 or 70 of them coming. And it's an army of these pale crabs saying, you're mine. And so Logan starts to dive after these things and pick them up. And before long, I involve myself in it, and, you know, and you're picking them up and throwing them in the, the bucket. And that means more to him than anything else that I could have done that night for him. And what was behind that wasn't just doing it. It was the fact that I held the commitment to do it. That's what mattered most. The other night, it was Friday night, Judy um, set up some tents in the backyard and she's blowing up an air mattress and I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, it's on. Because I I just, guys, I know I'm Alaskan now, but I, I don't like to just to lay on the ground, you know. But there was a mattress and the kids really wanted me to camp with them. And I'm going, man. All right, you know, but, but Friday night came around. I began to beg off and begin to go, you know, kids, I've done this and this and this with you. And I just watched them and they just, they want to know if I'm going to involve myself. And so I, I went to bed, you know, in the tent and got zipped up in the bag and went to sleep. And it was a good night. All right. It, it worked out. 
Nothing ate me that night. You know, it was fine. Not even mosquitoes. But it, uh, it was good to do. It was good to follow up. And kids won't, I don't think, listen to what you believe in. And they won't listen to the doctrine. And they won't listen to the gospel unless they know that you love their hearts and you love what they care about. That's an important commitment to make. All right. Fourth commitment. Fourth and fifth commitment. These commitments actually tie together. And this has to do with how we are involving ourselves with our community, with our community. You might say, what does that mean? Well, let's just put it in terms of your physical neighbors that live around you and your boss or your coworker. And God is calling us to live the gospel as much as speak the gospel. And I just want to encourage you, this is sort of a very practical part of the message that If you want to evangelize the world, you have to live a life of integrity on the job. That's it. If you want an entree to preach the truth, you got to serve your boss as a person. So often I think we, you know, punch in and punch out and then we grumble and complain about the people we work with or, you know, everything that's wrong. And we forget that we're working with people. You say, but you don't know my boss. I I don't like to work with my boss and he doesn't care about me and I don't really care about him. Well, let me just reframe it like Paul does. Paul says, verse five, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So he's talking about a slave coming to a master and he's saying, look, open your heart up to him. And he says, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. In other words, when you come and you're coming under an employer, you need to approach them in terms of a relationship, just like you would have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's very interesting. And he reverses it and says to the master, in the same way, don't abuse the person that's working for you, but you have to serve them because you are accountable to a boss that's higher than you. And that's God himself. Look at verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. You say, I can't, I can't do it. I can't work for people in that way. This, you don't know my boss. I just have to harden up and just, you know, sort of set my jaw and work every day and try to forget about my boss. Well, no, you're called to work for him. And if you can't, in your mind, do it in terms of getting there relationally with your boss, then just work for his boss, which is Christ. And let your relationship with Christ every day melt your heart so that you'll begin to melt before your boss in love for that person. And with your coworkers or people that work under you, it's the same thing. You say, you don't understand. This person is with me and I I don't want to like this person. Well, if you begin to love this person, pray for this person and work with this person, guess what? If you treat them as a person, as a relationship, things will open up in your life. And you might even find yourself with gospel opportunities. I don't like the, the phrase that says, you know, look, just live the gospel and use words if necessary. Or preach the gospel and use words if, if necessary. I don't like that because it's the word of God that changes people's minds and hearts, is it not? It's the word of Christ that opens people up to believe. But I do like the emphasis at some level that we have to live the gospel first. Paul was very concerned with the church reaching the world. That was a core commitment 
of his being. He loved the Jews and he said, look, I would be accursed in hell if I could reach the Jews for Christ, my kinsmen. I mean, he was very passionate about this and he was passionate about it on behalf of the church. And he wanted the church to say, you know what? I want to get on mission. I want to pray for people in my community and put myself out there for them. God is involved in all of the details of your life, by the way. Where you live, who you work with, who you work for. All of these details are tailor-made by God in your life. Perhaps some of you aren't even working, but you have friends that are just out there around you that are watching your life. It's very important. I, I was reminded of this when we came home from our trip and Judy was in the kitchen and she's cooking on our Gen Air stove in our island in our kitchen and the kids are all around waiting to be served and all of a sudden I hear ah and Judy doesn't typically do that so I know it's something serious I mean she's pretty tough and so but the sparks actually were flying out of the control uh, the controls of the Gen Air stove so I went, wow that's a problem so she cut it off and I went down to the um, fuse box and, you know, I'm pretty mechanically inclined. So, uh, you know, if I do say so myself, yeah, not really. So I, I went in and, you know, toggled the fuse and all of a sudden I hear, ah! And in, other, in other words, I had re-sparked the whole thing. So I was on the phone with Brian Laker pretty quickly after that. And Brian, out of the goodness of his heart, said, look, I just don't want you to burn the house down. So let me stop by. And uh, he did. But as he was coming over, a neighbor was coming over that we have a good relationship with. And Judy just began to tell what was going on to the neighbor. The neighbor said, hey, I've got a Gen Air stove just like that one in my garage right next door that I got at a garage sale. Let's see if it fits. So within one hour of Brian coming over and these neighbors coming over, it was like a pit crew change where we just missed one hour of dinner and we had a whole new used setup in our kitchen. It's pretty amazing. But it was just a testimony of God being involved in those particular details. A lot of times, you know, something breaks and it takes a day or a day and a half or you got to order a part or there's a lot of money rolling out for a repair. However, in this case, God was blessing us in those details in this circumstance. But I think he was doing it for a greater purpose so that we could have a testimony in front of our neighbors involving ourselves in the community, a sincerity of heart in our relationship with the Lord, where people see that and they realize that God is real and involved. Well, the last commitment relates to this one, and that is our relationship to unbelievers. Relationship to unbelievers. Let's pick up, first of all, in verse 18. Paul has just talked through the armor of God. We're not going to get into that, but at the end of his armor of God talk, he says, listen, church, Pray for me at all times in the spirit, using supplication, perseverance. Pray earnestly for me. Why? Verse 19. He says, and also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He says, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Now, this is a little bit of an interesting statement for Paul to make, isn't it? Here he is writing a letter from a Roman dark stinky prison where he's probably chained to a Roman guard. And he's saying, look, pray for me that I can preach boldly the gospel to people. 
It's like, how, what's the best way to advance the kingdom of God? Well, take a guy who's a spiritual leader and have him come under criminal charges, put him in prison and shackles and have him write a little bit, but pray for him that he can start preaching and that ministry will multiply through that. It's kind of radical, isn't it? He really didn't have the laser light show backing with his preaching ministry, did he? He was just in prison as a convict preaching the gospel. That's what he prayed for. That's what he cared about most of all. And the reason I bring this situation up is that you have your own situation. You have your own Roman prison. You have your own scenario where you go, look, there are obstacles here where it doesn't seem like I should be able to boldly preach the gospel or share Christ with anybody. But I want to encourage you to relook at your circumstances. Even if they don't look like natural ways for you to share Christ, perhaps the Lord is designing a way for you to boldly witness to someone in your sphere of influence. I'm sure he has. He's called us to make disciples. He said that the field is white for harvest, right? I was out and, uh, you know, sort of connected with... Um, the guy who rented us our beach house over these three weeks. And basically, uh, he's an old friend from the East Coast, and he and I were both employed under this lifeguard chief on those, that beach that we were positioned on over the weeks. And this guy rented us his house, and so I got to reconnect with him. And we've talked a little bit on the phone over the course of 25 years, but not very much. So he knows I'm a believer, and he's actually a guy who um, he involves um, mentally handicapped, many, mentally handicapped people within his business, and he's uh, he reaches out to people who are coming back from the war um, and puts them on his rental equipment out on the beach. And so he's a very good-hearted guy, but he's not yet a believer. And so I just spent some time with him, and we went out one evening and talked and. The things that he wanted to talk about were fascinating to me because they were just very gut-level, heart-level issues. And the two things we talked about were when he was on the scene working rescue for a scenario where a boy had been bitten by a shark in his femoral artery and this boy bled out in front of him and died on the way to the hospital. I mean, it was just tremendously burdensome for him. We actually had gone over to dinner under um, the guy who hired us both to be lifeguards, you know, umpty ump years ago. And this guy brought that scenario up at dinner, and I watched my friend slump over in his chair. And I said, that, that was, must have been pretty tough. And he said, yeah, it's, it's a hard burden to carry. I thought, yeah, that's tough. And it was just that he had watched a child die. And that led to another conversation where he was talking about the time when he was supervising the beach area and the guards and a guy got out too far and one man in 17 years went down and died sort of on our watch. Well, he didn't remember that I was two, three lifeguard chairs down from where he was and the guy died out in the water in front of another lifeguard, but but this guy I'm talking to is saying, listen, I remember barking out commands by the walkie-talkie to that lifeguard saying, should you go, should you go, it looks like he's too far. And I said, you know what, you don't remember this, but I was right there, and I remember what you were saying, and you were doing everything that you were supposed to do on the job to secure the safety of that person. And the lifeguard just didn't go quickly enough. And so I was able to sort of ease his conscience and... And God was involved in the details of that relationship and that conversation. 
And I said, listen, look, you've been reflecting on all of God's creation over here in Back Bay and on the Outer Banks. And it's a beautiful thing to see God through creation. But let me tell you about God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. I said, have you ever read the Gospel of John? I said, all of God's attributes come clear in the cross. All of the thunder and lightning of who Jesus is as Lord, as Savior, as mercy giver, as redeemer, as forgiver, as the one who takes on the wrath of God and and is giving mercy to the whole world to be saved. All of that is found in the cross. Have you ever read a gospel? And have you ever read the gospel of John? He said, no, never have. This guy's very bright. And he just said, look, I'll read it for you and I will report to you that I've done it. That's just, this, this is just what we should be about all the time. It's just giving and living the gospel. These core commitments. This, these are not, again, my own personal core commitments. These are the commitments that we should make as individual Christians in our church. A commitment to walk with Jesus. A commitment to be faithful to our spouse and know our spouse personally. A commitment to love our children and a commitment to the world, our community, and living out the gospel and sharing the gospel in words. This is what we should be all about. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to talk in a business meeting forum about the vision of our church. And I really want this to be part one to what we talk about tonight because I'm going to share my heart in terms of how our staff and elders have been dreaming about reaching Our community, our community as a church, but also reaching out through our church to the mission work of Anchorage, Alaska, and the world. You need to hear about this because we need to be excited to be praying for the mission of our church. And I would encourage you to come, even if you're brand new, come find out about where we're going as Anchorage Grace Church. Because it's all founded in the scripture. God is our captain and he gives us our marching orders and we want to say yes sir and amen and follow him. These are our commitments to Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you